Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon is Mark 6, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us like this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in, in his own household. And he could, not, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of God to us. All right. Well, good morning. All right, chipper little group here. Let's get to work. Hey, my name is Chad Kinser. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I serve as one of our pastors. And uh, we are, uh, if you're jumping in with us today, we're working through uh, kind of systematically the, the gospel of Mark. And so if you've got a Bible, we're in chapter 6 today. And uh, we're going to look at these first 13 verses that were just read. And we've had a full weekend here at our church. Uh, yesterday we had around 200 people here at a marriage symposium uh, talking about the, the vision for marriage coming from the scriptures, but also some practical helps. We had folks who are married, single, dating, engaged. It was really fun. And if you, had, if you weren't able to come and be a part of that, those are going to be recorded and posted on our website if you want to catch those um, in, in a couple of weeks. So it was a fun weekend, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to capping it off as we're here on the Lord's Day to talk about the Word of God. So I want to pray. You pray for me, and I'll pray for you, and we'll see how Jesus will shape us as his people. Jesus, we, uh, we come in your name. We stand underneath your work, your banner, your triumph over sin and death. We come before your word not fearing that you're going to distance us. We come before your word knowing that it's by your word that you draw us near. And so I pray that you'd protect the preaching of your word today. That you would allow it to accomplish everything you intend. The variety of places that we arrive in this room and the struggles of our faith and the struggles in our life. God, I pray that you would form us as your disciples. Would you lift us? Would you strengthen us? And uh, would, you, would you help us with this really tricky thing of trusting you in the world? We just confess it's hard to trust you, Jesus. And so help our unbelief today. We pray in Jesus' name. We all agreed and said, amen. 
Well, this last week I got to do something that is one of my uh, favorite things to do as a, as a pastor, as an elder in this church. I got to sit with a couple of different community groups uh, this week and have really fun conversations about things that are um, pertinent to their group and things that they're thinking about. And one of the groups in particular kind of invited me over just to have a conversation around things that they've been discussing and had questions about, controversial doctrines, uh, things that often can split a church or things that in a, in a moment of progressive culture um, make Christians to look uh, a bit dumb, I think. And so uh, conversations around um, men and women and their roles in the church, uh, particularly the role of women in ministry. Uh, we talked about predestination. We, we talked about LGBTQ. We talked about all kinds of things that you're like, man, that was just the hot button hour. And it, and it was a lot of fun. But, but here's where the conversation went. I totally get it that in this day and age, when Christians start to unfold what the Bible teaches or what we believe the Bible teaches on these issues, we're going to look increasingly weird in this moment. We're going to look increasingly antiquated. We're going to look increasingly narrow-minded. We're going to look increasingly thoughtless, blind. And people are going to look at us and go, you, you really believe that? I, I, I thought you were a thinking person. I thought you were educated. I, you, do you really believe those things? And, and in a moment like we live in, we're going to look increasingly weird. And at times that feels like a threat to us. That feels as though when the conversations come that Christians are on the wrong side of history. If we don't figure out how to progress and massage and nuance our views, then we're going to be left behind. And we feel that, which is why all the rage happens on social media and you speak into the void of that black hole as though you're going to change the world with a post, right? And we get threatened by what feels like the carpet being ripped out from under us. And here's what we talk about in those groups. Actually... The weirder we look, the more prophetic we can actually be. That's not a threat to us. It's actually an invitation to where discipleship can actually begin to be clear. And what I mean by that is the culture moves in one direction and Christians look as though they're on the wrong side of history, which this is not the first moment that's ever happened. This has happened before. When that begins to happen... You can't have a fuzzy, generic belief in God anymore that makes no difference on your life because belief in God will do nothing for you. You just look stupid. So those who actually claim to have a life-transforming faith in and connection to Jesus will actually look prophetic in the world. They'll actually have something to say because they'll be distinct. And what's interesting is that you and I actually live in a really weird part of the world. The fact that we can gather a couple of hundred people and across a day, a, a thousand people in, in, a, in a worship service to sing freely and to hear the word of God preached freely and to do so in comfort and we're not afraid of ourselves. This is actually weird. If you think globally and historically around the world, this is not normal. Persecution and rejection and opposition, that's normal. Hostility toward the gospel, that's normal. What we're doing here is actually weird and that ought to come to us as a bit of a danger, because we can be lulled to sleep in our comfort, we can be lulled to sleep in what feels like a safe belief in God, and not actually take seriously the urgency of following Jesus. And so what's, what's happening here in the passage that we're looking at today, I feel like I'm already preaching in my intro, and I'm just trying to sort of set this thing up, but what's happening here today in the passage is that we're going to be introduced to two themes at this point in the ministry of Jesus, two themes that are really important for us to think about as we follow Jesus in the world, rejection and mission. Rejection and mission. And particularly with mission, it's the power of 
the mission of Jesus in the face of rejection. So we're going to look at mission or uh, rejection and mission. And I want you to notice first here in the first six verses that Jesus was rejected. We'll read them again. It says, he went away from there and he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And with what wisdom was this given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters even here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do, he could not do, uh, and he could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is a shocking passage on its own. Like if we were just to take these six verses and sort of pull them out from the narrative, it's shocking alone and we'll unpack that. But in the flow of the book, in these first six chapters, five chapters now opening six, this narrative is meant to pack a punch. So here's what's happening. Jesus has been teaching off the Sea of Galilee. He's made some trips back and forth. We've covered those things in the last couple of weeks. He's been performing some miracles along the way, and his disciples now make their way back after these travels to his hometown of Nazareth. And on the Sabbath, the whole community is gathered there in the synagogue, and he joins them, and he begins to teach. I wonder what it would have been like to hear Jesus roll back into his hometown after a bit of a teaching tour and bringing the freedom of the kingdom of God through healings and through ministry to come back to his hometown and to hear him preach. Apparently, it was an amazing sermon. It says that they were astonished. But that's also where things get weird. That's also where things get a bit tight and tenuous in this passage. Surely the people had been hearing the buzz about his ministry to this point. They'd been hearing about people gathering from, it says, all the different regions around to come and flock near him. He was so uh, packed with people along the Sea of Galilee that he had to come off from shore because they were filled along the banks of the sea. He was teaching, he was healing, he was doing miracles. Then he comes back to his hometown, to the people that he grew up with. He goes into the synagogue that he would have worshipped Saturday after Saturday over the course of three decades. These are the people that he would have interacted with in the marketplace and in worship over the course of his life. He preaches this sermon. It says they are blown away, but then their astonishment turns to offense. Their astonishment turns to offense. Actually, the word for offense there is the Greek word scandalizo. And I don't bring that up very often, but it's where we get our word scandalized. They were scandalized by him. They were offended. They were put off by him. And what's interesting about what Mark is doing in this sequence of the events of Jesus is that this has been the typical response to this point. So when Jesus unrolls his ministry, the civic leaders of Jerusalem are completely offended by Jesus. They are threatened by him because he's upending their influence and their power. And then the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're threatened and offended by Jesus because he's confronting their self-righteousness and their fake religion, and he's upending their influence and their power. So the right-wing politics in his day and the left-wing politics in his day are threatened and offended by Jesus. Then he goes into the village of the demoniac and he heals the deranged man. But that group of people comes out to him and they, say, they beg him, would you please leave our city? They are threatened and they are offended by his power. 
And now he comes into Nazareth, his own hometown, small town, backwoods, grassroots people, and they're offended by him. And the reason that they're offended is they bring up his upbringing. Notice what it says in verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom that's been given to him? How are such mighty works happening through him? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? And his sisters are here with us, and they took offense. So they're saying, hey, wait a second. That was a great sermon, but who do you think you are? Where did you get these things? You feel like you're a hot shot or something among us, that you're going to come back now after you've gone on this little tour, and you're going to tell us how things are supposed to be, and you're going to tell us that the kingdom of God is in you? Didn't you grow up with us? Aren't aren't you a blue-collar person just like us? You had manual labor just like us. You're not of the wealthy class. You're you're a carpenter. And verse 3 gets really offensive. It says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? What's interesting here is in their culture, if you know anything about the Bible, a person's lineage, a person's line was not tracked through their mom. It was always mentioned as through their dad, their father. And so for them to reference his blue-collar background and manual labor and then bypass any acknowledgement of Joseph, but to jump in on his mom, they're not only speaking derogatory about him, they're speaking derogatory about his mom. Your mom was pregnant outside of wedlock, and you're an illegitimate child. This is how Tim Keller puts this whole thing. It was said better than I can do it. It says, you can't hide things in a small town. One of the things you can't hide is when Joseph and Mary get married in June, but then a baby is born in September. Small towns never forget things like that. They never, never, never forget things like that. They're saying, you think you're hot stuff, Jesus Christ. We don't even know who your father is. We have no idea who your father is. It could be Joseph, but it might not be. We don't even know who your father is, and therefore you're a man without a father. In our culture, that means you're a man without an identity. You're a nobody, you're a bastard. Jesus rejected in his own hometown. And it appears that the rumors and the ridicule around the mystery of his birth followed him and his family throughout his life. And then there's this really strange line in verse 5. It says that he couldn't do any mighty works there in his hometown. And it's not meant to suggest that Jesus all of a sudden was like, oh my gosh, they don't like me, my power is gone. It's not to suggest his inability but it's to suggest that he was so intensely rejected that no one was open to him except a few people, and he healed them and moved on his way. And here's the point of me bringing all this up. A scholar that really helped me understand the point of this says this. In spite of what they heard, in spite of what they saw, they failed to penetrate the veil of the ordinariness which characterized this one who had grown up in the village. So what's interesting about this passage is it tells us of the ordinariness of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. They're hearing this this one who grew up with them. They're hearing this one who was in Jewish school with them. They're hearing this one who was in the marketplace with them, who went to family reunions with them, who interacted with them in all kinds of ways, who probably performed some contract labor in their homes. And all of a sudden, now he's calling himself the son of God? Is this man crazy? He looks just like us. If you're really the son of God, then surely there'd be more pomp and circumstance. You would look like somebody. You look like us. That's 
the wildness of God entering in. He came just like us, to live just like us, to live with us, to live in the ordinary with us. And yet this was the thing that was off-putting to them. And so this points back to something that we talk about all the time. The reason that they rejected Jesus is because he wasn't doing for them what they wanted him to do. He was not meeting their expectations. If you're really the son of God, then why don't you overthrow Rome? Why don't you quit this oppression? And why don't you set up a new political regime where Israel is on top? Jesus didn't come with pomp and circumstance. He didn't come to overthrow. He came with a different way of love. And so the question begins to beg for you and I, what do you do when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do when he doesn't do for you what you want him to do? Is he someone then just to be bypassed and be offended at? Well, he must not exist. He must not even be a thing. And so I'll just power through my own way. Or is he still yet submitted to as the one who has the prerogative? Jesus was, a, was rejected. But then I want you to notice the passage turns. It's not just that he was rejected, but he now looks at his disciples who were with him in his hometown, who witnessed all of this. And he says, hey, and if you follow me, I just want you to know you too will be rejected. You too will be rejected. Pick up with me in verse 7. And he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. Don't take any bread, no bag, no money for your belt, but wear some sandals and, and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. So they move on from Nazareth. And then Jesus, for the first time, he does what he told them they would do when he called them to be his disciples he sends them out to carry out his ministry. They've been around him. They've been seeing him do ministry. They've heard his sermons. They've heard him teach. And he now says, I want you to go out and I want you to do the same stuff. And he gives them these instructions to not take anything with them except the clothes on their back and a walking staff and some sandals. And the reason he tells them to do this, he's like, I really want you guys to know. I really want you to know that when you follow me in the world, God will take care of you. God will meet your needs, and just, this, is, this is just a run here. I want you to develop in this skill set of trust. Don't take anything with you and watch God provide, right? That's the whole point of this whole thing. But then the whole thing turns in verse 10, and he says to them, and when you go out, not only will God provide for you, but you'll be rejected. And you're going to have some things to say. In fact, I'm telling you to preach, but people won't want to listen to you. <laughs> And so you're like, well, then why are you sending me, right? Must have People rejected me, and they're going to reject you too. And he says this, it's not an if that's going to happen, it's when. To follow me in the world, to carry out my ministry, you too will be rejected. And notice he tells them, here's what you should do when you're rejected. He says, I want you to shake the dust off of your sandals when this happens. Taylor Swift is made famous for this, right? I got a little bit of a gaggle there, so. But here's what's happening when he, why he tells them this. This was a Jewish practice that whenever they would travel outside of the nation of Israel and they would go into a pagan land, after they did their business there and they came back into Israel, they left that community, they would shake the dust 
off of their clothing, shake the dust off of their sandals, and it was a sign of saying, I'm not going to associate, I'm going to disassociate with those pagan people, and this is a sign of God's judgment on them. It was a self-entitled, self-righteous sign of being God's chosen people. And so now Jesus says, when you go out and you proclaim the kingdom of God has come through me, and if they don't listen to you, I want you to do the same sign that they do to the nations. I want you to do it to them. A sign that they would recognize. I want you to shake the dust off of your feet as a prophetic sign to them to consider more what they've heard that they've ignored, lest God's judgment come on them. And so here's what's now happening. Lean in here. They've rejected Jesus. Jesus says they're going to reject you. And what's happening now is he's saying the kingdom of God is both attractive and offensive at the same time. It's attractive, isn't it? The kingdom of God is attractive. We believe the forgiveness of sins. We believe the love of God. We believe the grace of God. We believe the resurrection of the body. We believe the restoration of all things. We believe in justice and care for the poor and the marginalized, the orphan and the widow. We believe in so many things that the watching world will go, we believe that too. We want that too. It's attractive. Power over darkness. But it's not just attractive, the kingdom is also offensive. How is it that we get those things? You realize the only way we get those attractive things is through a homeless Jewish rabbi who was stapled to a Roman cross, put in a grave, and three days later came out of that grave, and the only way to the love of God, the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of all things, power over darkness, is that every nation would hang on the garment of that Jew. That's offensive. That's offensive. The kingdom of God is attractive, but it only comes through him, him, you mean I've got to humble myself to him and it only, not me, but him? It's attractive, but it's offensive. And what's interesting is when we're disciples in the world, we go, I want to just be attractive. I just want to sign up for attractive discipleship. And so I want to be nice and I want to be kind and I want to be known for Oklahoma hospitality. And isn't that nice? And I want to play, I want to play melodic Christian music in all of my favorite stores and restaurants and no words because that's, you know, but just the, just the tunes. And that's attractive. And some people are like, I don't want to make waves with my faith. I want to believe in all of this, but just sort of to myself. And there's other people who go, I don't want to bother with being attractive. I just want to be offensive. And they're like the religious whistleblowers on Facebook and they like feel proud of themselves when people dislike their comments. Like, that's a real mission. They hate me, you know. It's like, no, you're just a jerk, you know. But Jesus is telling his disciples that to follow me, they're going to reject me, but they're going to reject you because there's attraction and offense all at the same time. This is why Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and they persecute you and they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so here's what all of a sudden became indicting to me, just speaking of my own struggle with this. According to what the Bible is saying, according to what Jesus is saying, if you're only known to be attractive in your discipleship, 
or only known to be offensive in your discipleship, or probably even worse, you're not even known to be either of those things, then something is wrong with your discipleship. It's probably not true. That's what's interesting here. Because here's what's happening. Anytime Jesus walks around, he can't get out of the way of being attractive and offensive. He's not one or the other. He's both, wherever he goes. People aren't indifferent about Jesus. And what's interesting is his disciples, when they're sent out, they're not indifferent about them. They're both attractive and offensive at the same time. Because that's true discipleship. It looks like their Lord. And here's what's also interesting. If you think throughout the history of the church and throughout global Christianity, any time a community has had real impact on their city, they've been remarkably exclusive. Radically exclusive. And what I mean by that? They proclaim the kingdom of God only comes through Jesus Christ. Not other faiths, not other belief systems attached to it, not like a smorgasbord of religiosity. There is no other salvation under any other name than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Communities that have a real impact on their city are radically exclusive and they're radically inclusive because it's for everybody. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's invited to the party. Your sexuality doesn't discount you. Your sexuality or your, or, or, or your fear of what's going to happen there isn't stiff-arming you. Your political beliefs aren't stiff-arming you. It, there's literally nothing. Your background and what's happened back there doesn't stiff-arm you. Everyone's invited. It's all-inclusive. Come one, come all, but it's exclusive around how it comes through this one man. This is the kingdom of God, but I want you to notice this, and here's the big landing today. Jesus says, they've rejected me. Jesus says, they're gonna reject you too. But thirdly, the mission goes on. These are the last two verses today. It says this, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Exclusive. But they cast out many demons and anointed many, inclusive, and they healed them. And here's what's crazy about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> this blows my mind. It feels like, in our minds, that rejection would invalidate the whole thing. That to be rejected and to be shunned would shut the whole thing down. Jesus, aren't you worried that if they reject us and they don't listen to us, that it's going to invalidate the, the whole mission? But in fact, what's happening throughout all of history, throughout that point then and all over the world, is wherever the gospel faces the most pushback is also the places where it grows rapidly. You look at Iraq, you look at Iran, you look at Turkey, you look at China, and the list could go on of places where there's government hostility, but the church is in revival. Christians are being murdered. Christians are being killed. Christians are being persecuted. God tends to use the faithful witness of his people in the face of opposition as a prophetic sign that it's actually true. <laughs> it's actually true. Tertullian, a third century early church father, would say, even in the face of martyrdom, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. You try to kill us, you try to shut us up, actually the fact that we'll die for the message proclaims loudly that the message is actually true. We'll die for it. You can't shut this thing down. And it's amazing, here's the, it's amazing who Jesus sends out. 
He told him when he called him, hey, I'm going to send you out to carry out my ministry in the world. Like, you're not going to get out of doing this. And it's not just to them, it's also to us. He sends us out. But it's amazing who he sends out. Here's what we know. We're in chapter 6. Here's what we know about the disciples to this point. They don't understand the teachings of Jesus. (laughs) He taught the parables and they go, "We we don't get it. Can we have like a tutorial? They don't understand the teachings of Jesus. They're not even confident he's going to protect them or desires to. Remember, they freaked out in the boat. And number three, they have no sensibilities for the needs of the people around them. Whenever the crowds get big, they keep going, get back, get back, get back, get back. And Jesus is like, what's wrong with you guys? These people need ministry. (laughs) So Jesus sends out for kingdom expansion and proclamation People who don't understand his teachings, who aren't sure he's going to take care of them, and who are insensitive to the needs of the people around him. And he goes, why don't you guys go have your hand at it? (laughs) That seems like a terrible plan. That seems like it's going to fail. But this is the status of his group. And I've got one last quote because this connects directly to you and me. In individual experience, too many Christians have few, if any, non-Christian friends. We spend our days, whenever the choice is ours, with Christians. And as a result, we rarely put the gospel to the test, as the disciples were having to do. We go for safety in the faith, but we try to follow a Lord who risked himself in the incarnation and everything that followed it. We build up our security while serving the Lord who went by death to resurrection. The result is that we narrow the power of the gospel and we narrow our perception of its possibilities. And yet we're pleading all the time, I can't be sent out until I get more training. But that is met by the simple observation that the disciples needed more training, much more training. Yet they were sent out and they were effective. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? So as we did today, there's occasionally we'll pray an intercession moment for revival in the city. We'll encourage you to pray for people maybe on your street that you know that don't know Jesus. And every time we do that, I pray for this particular neighbor of mine. And I've been doing so for for a few months. And the last time we did that, I thought, you know what? I should stop praying for my neighbor. And I should actually have a conversation with my neighbor. I've been praying for my neighbor for months. And it's just like I'm hoping something by osmosis takes, you know. And um, and I started to have this conviction that, hey, what if I lived my life as a maverick in the pulpit, but I was a coward on my block? And so uh, about a month ago, I I talk with my neighbor all the time. He's got this little Shizu that he walks around, and it's amazing, and he, like, poops in my yard. But he's like, oh, let me go, let me go get, I have a bag for that, you know. It's great. And... uh, and so, anyway, about a month ago, I said, hey, um, man, I want you to forgive me. If I, I've never mentioned that I'm a Christian. And we, we, we've had so many, like, you know, curbside conversations and all the rest. And I, and I, I just, uh, I'm curious what you think about Christianity. And that opened up a whole conversation of his background and people who he's been deeply hurt by, who claim to be holy people and all of the rest. And he's like, you know, I, I believe in God, but that's just something I practice in my house. And so we had a conversation around all of that. 
Now, I didn't bow with Bob and go, hey, thanks for sharing all that. Let's pray a prayer of repentance. But it was a conversation. It was a start. And here's what I know to be true. You can't shut down the mission of Jesus. And I just thought, hey, what, what if I didn't just preach that? What if I tried that? <laughs> what if I tried that? And so I want to end today by just saying the invitation to discipleship is an invitation to rejection by the world. And that shouldn't shock us because the, the world rejected Jesus too. And you just happen to look a lot like your Lord when that happens. But it's not that everyone's going to reject you because not everyone rejected him. It's both being attractive and offensive at the same time. And so where do we get the courage for that? Where, do, where am I trying to get the courage for that? It's, it's at the cross of our Lord, right? The cross of Jesus isn't just about where you, the, the way of salvation. It's the way of motivation, inspiration, and equipping. And so what happened at the cross is that Jesus suffered the greatest of all rejection. He suffered the rejection that you and I deserve because of the way we've rejected the Most High God. He suffered that in our place so that we would only know the acceptance once for all time forever from the Father. Jesus, Jesus was alienated by his disciples at the hour of his death, but then his death invited them into a whole new family where they'll be accepted forever. Jesus sent out the 12, and we know the mission worked because we're here today still talking about it. And what if he sends out a thousand from our church today? What if we took the invitation of attractiveness and offensiveness all at the same time, exclusive and radically inclusive, and just said, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, today we, um, we just ask your help. And we want to confess Jesus as Lord, not with our lips, but we want to be a people that confess him with our life. And we just confess that we don't know how to do that. We're not strong enough for that. But I'm also thankful that you sent out a group of people <laughs> who didn't understand, just like us, who weren't confident, just like us, and who were insensitive, just like us. And somehow, by sending us, you'll actually form us. Help us trust you, good king. We offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.